Welcome to Archaeology in 30, a podcast produced by the Florida Public Archaeology Network. I'm your host, Mike Toman, and on this episode, we'll talk to FPAN Northeast Emily Jane Murray. Emily will talk to us about the impact Hurricane Matthew had on St. Augustine and how storm surges will affect historic resources in the state. We'll also discuss how sea level rise will impact Florida's archaeological sites and what we can do about it. Emily describes a new program FPAN developed to deal with this that the public can participate in and how learning about how people confronted climate change in the past can guide our future. Emily Jane Murray is the Public Archaeology Coordinator for FPAN's Northeast Regional Office. She joins us now via Skype uh, out of St. Augustine, Florida. Hey, Emily, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. And we are now almost in the winter, winter holidays. We're like a week away from uh, Christmas time, which means we've been officially out of hurricane season for almost a month, which hurricane season ends in, uh, on uh, November 30th. Uh, unfortunately, this year, Florida was not spared from having to deal with a hurricane. Hurricane Matthew struck the east coast of Florida a couple months ago. Can you tell me how has uh, how was St. Augustine impacted in general from, from Hurricane Matthew and, and, and also how you guys uh, uh, dealt with it from, from your office? Well, Hurricane Matthew hit at high tide, <laughs> so that was a big deal. We did have, they were projecting that it was going to hit with some stronger winds, and it slowed down a little bit, but really what got us was the storm surge. And, and it was, like I say, it was the high tide. So downtown St. Augustine is a historic city. And if you get a full moon and a high tide and just the right conditions, you get flooding in the streets, you know, on any given day. So having this big hurricane bring in a lot of rain and then get the, the storm surge coming in. So there is definitely several feet of water in the streets and quite a few historic structures took some flood damage. And of course we have, you know, a lot of archeological deposits under the city. And so they would have been inundated with a lot of water as well. And you guys lost a vehicle or two, didn't you, from that surge? <laughs> we, we did. We had, we moved our cars to what we thought would be higher ground and then realized it was not high enough. So we had, one car that was be, it was waiting to get turned in for a new vehicle and a tree fell on it. So it was good that that one, it was, it was basically already dead. And then we had a Prius and it, the Prius was just not high enough off of the ground. Uh, well, actually all of our cars got flooded, but the Prius, you know, all the electric parts of it or, or it wasn't fixable for, with the flood water. So. Yeah. I guess yeah. water is not good for uh, <laughs> electronics in, in general. No. <laughs> No, so, something to think about with the electric cars, maybe. Right, <laughs> maybe yeah. <laughs> an issue in flood-prone areas. Totally, so. yeah. And um, so um, you mentioned historic um, structures, yeah. and so uh, you know, it's, I know it's been a little, a little over a month or two now since that hurricane hit. Um, how, how did you know? How, how did this actually impact cultural resources um, in general, uh, and, and in what ways? Or do we even know that yet? I think we're we're still figuring some of it out. So immediately after the storm, we did get a couple of phone calls. There was a some sort of wooden ship uh, that is on the beach up in Jacksonville, and it's one in I'm not sure if it's the a state park. I think it's in a state park. So they've been tracking it, and they found that the ship actually moved up the beach quite a few 
feet from where it was originally recorded. So we got things immediately that people saw appearing or impacts. We got calls. There was a lot of erosion at places like Coastal Shulman. So uh, one site in particular, the Shell Bluff Landing, which is at the GTM Research Reserve, I think they lost four feet of shell midden in some areas and it has a historic well in in the shell midden so it's now basically all exposed uh, where it was you know only a couple of inches sticking out of the ground to begin with and you know these are sites that we know are affected we know there's erosion happening at that site we know that the the boats get exposed and unexposed and are covered up so we we knew to look for some of those things but we didn't know you know, what could have happened elsewhere. And so we're still getting kind of phone calls of, of people sorting through. Uh, a lot of the historic structures in downtown St. Augustine, we do have a number, I think we have somewhere around 100 colonial structures, but also a lot of Victorian buildings. So a lot of those got flood damage. And it's actually interesting. One of the things I learned in helping do some of the damage assessment from the historic preservation planner at the city, a lot of the historic buildings did better with the flooding than the newer buildings because a lot of them are raised up off of the ground on on pillars. So in some cases, the floodwater didn't actually get into the house. They have nicer hardwood floors that can can dry out once they get wet with less warping and you know some of the new laminates and all you just have to basically rip it out and throw it away and then things like the sheetrock you get an inch of water in your house it runs up the sheetrock 18 inches you have to cut all the walls out but some of the historic homes have plaster walls and the plaster just dries out without the issues of, of mold mold growth so that was pretty interesting to learn and like man we should have we should still be building these houses like we used to right it's almost like they knew uh, a little bit better in terms of yeah. uh construction and design and uh you know and i guess i guess that's true in general that that i guess things built a long time ago they, they tended to to kind of maybe think about these things a little bit more yeah. uh, or maybe just got lucky i don't know and you mentioned the um gtm uh research preservers can you can you explain what that is Certainly. So it is short for it is the Guana Talamado Matanzas National Estuarine Research Reserve. So it is one of three national estuarine research reserves that we have here in the state of Florida. We have one over at Apalachicola and one in the Tampa area that's called Rookery Bay. So what these are are their partnerships between the state of Florida, the Department of Environmental Protection, and uh, NOAA. And they are managed areas that are all estuaries. So there's a lot of great research that happens there into environmental, you know, changes that they're seeing and getting baseline data about, you know, water quality and things like that. So uh, the one here is named after the three rivers that it is uh, that are in the reserve. So the Guana and the Talamado are up north of St. Augustine, and the Matanzas is south of St. Augustine, and the Guana and the Matanzas are actually part of the intercoastal waterway as well. So they have something like 75,000 uh, acres of land that's that makes up the park. And it's actually a big partnership between lots of different land managers. So there's uh, county parks, there's state parks, there's national parks and other types of, you know, uh, wildlife management areas, other types of land managers that all kind of come together to create the, the reserve. And the reserve staff does manage a couple thousand acres on the Guana Peninsula, which is where Shell Bluff Landing is. So, and it's, uh, it's headquartered out in Ponte Vedra Beach. 
So and this, just north of St. Augustine. And this is a site, is, is it just research or is this a site that the public can actually access? Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of great hiking. Of course, there's lots of, you can get out on the water and appreciate the, the resources that way. And then, of course, you know, it does include like Fort Matanzas National Monument that has a, a one of the two Coquina forts that we have in the world, basically. So some, some great historic resources in there as well. And you had mentioned they had um, been monitoring uh, erosion, things like that, which which brings me to to another issue that I know um, that your office in particular has really kind of spearheaded um, in terms of looking at how cultural uh, resources, archaeological sites, historic structures, cemeteries are impacted. And this well, one big concern is something that climate scientists have certainly been uh, putting out there for, for for decades now, and that is the issue of rising sea levels. Um, now, this, this rising sea levels will certainly impact the state of Florida because of our long and heavily populated coastline. Uh, and in fact, according to John R. Gillis, who's a maritime history uh, historian in the United States, 54% of the population lives in what are now defined as coastal counties. Um, yet, certainly, this is not the first time of Florida uh, that Florida has been impacted by sea level rise. In fact, many archaeological sites from ancient times are are now uh, underwater. Can you explain how Florida's Ice Age coast once looked and uh, how it was impacted from sea level rise? The state of Florida was at least something like twice as wide as it is now, and most of that is out towards the Gulf Coast. There, there is a a good bit of land that's probably, you know, off the East Coast as well that is inundated. The we've seen periods throughout Florida's history of rapid sea level rise and of slow sea level sea level rise. And so this is one of the interesting things that I started looking into when we started thinking about sea level rise, because you think well, the sites will just be underwater and then we can just look at them as underwater sites because that's what we know, as you're saying, with some of these older sites going back up to uh, 14,500 years, they're in water and they're better preserved because they're in these anaerobic environments. So we can just look at the sites now like that. But it it is not quite as straightforward with that as that. So when we have episodes of fast sea level rise, the sites are just inundated and they're just now underwater. But when you have episodes of slower sea level rise, what happens is you have other kind of side effects, I guess, things like erosion that are happening where the sites are actually being slowly like torn away. You know, they're, they're going, they're getting shredded essentially as, as the bits and pieces float off. So believe it or not, we are actually in a level of slower sea level rise as compared to looking back, you know, the 15,000 years that people have been here. So we're seeing a lot of erosion at these sites as the sea level is coming in. So in theory, you know, this, or this theory that like, oh, well, you know, they'll be fine, they'll be underwater isn't necessarily going to ring true for a lot of these places because you're going to be heavily impacted by the, the wave action and the erosion before they even are ever inundated. So, uh, but you also have to think about the ease of getting to underwater sites. You, there's a lot more equipment involved. There's, you know, issues of, of scuba and being safe while you're working on them and even adding three feet or talking about diving. There's certain depths you can get to for certain lengths of time. And if you add a few more feet to that and you hit go past that threshold, then it's a whole other concern of how much time you can actually spend down under the water. So it does make it more difficult and more costly. And the water can affect the artifacts 
uh, you know, the site's at an, a level of artifacts, too. So we've seen uh, reports from Virginia where there are stone tools, which, okay, it's a rock. It'll be fine. But the stone tool has uh, the stone has ferrous minerals in it. And so essentially they've like rusted in salt water. Oh, wow. From being left under, under right. that, so yeah. yeah, I know some some older fortifications. Uh, the our our Fort Pickens out here um, after Hurricane Ivan, the storm surge uh, caused it to basically inundate um, parts of the fort. And I guess the the brick the the brick that had been um, submerged in that salt water is now they're having a lot of issues with it actually dissolving after over uh, almost two hundred years. So it can really. Uh, impact yeah. like like you mentioned um spe- speaking of that um you know c- do we have any idea on um how sea level rise a one or two meter level rise for example uh could potentially impact cultural resources like do, do we have any idea in terms of numbers here so chip birdsong with the he works for the the state division of historic resources but he did some modeling and has estimated that one meter of sea level rise will affect up to 16,000 resources. So this includes standing structures and bridges and cemeteries. But the number we've kind of, you know, keyed in as the public archaeology network, but also just to have a number that you can feel like you can manage. The archaeological sites is almost 3,000 sites with one meter. We have a safe, it's a safe number to go with and assume that that is how much sea level rise we will have uh, by the year 2100. Yeah, so. which, which sounds like it's <laughs> um, you know, a long ways away, but really it's not. Yeah. You know? So uh, yeah. it's, it's amazing how, how uh, things can kind of creep up you know, before you know it. And so, yeah. uh, you know, dealing with all these issues of sea level rise, storm surge from hurricanes, um, and, and how those can impact uh, you know, we mentioned people living by the coast and, uh, you know, archaeological sites and cemeteries, historic, uh, historic structures. Is there anything currently being done in the state of Florida uh, to, to deal with sea level change? So we've gone to a lot of, we sat in on a lot of conversations from you know, the environmental standpoint and from even just basic planning standpoints of where roads and, and buildings going to be. And one thing we've realized is that there's not really a great plan for, especially archaeological sites. Some of the folks who do historic preservation and look at structures have plans to shore up structures, to move them, to, to do different modifications to help them withstand some of this. But at the end of the day, you can't do a lot of that with an archaeological site. You can't move it. It's all about context. And when you start moving things around, at an archaeological site, you're destroying that context and you're, you're losing that information. So unfortunately, the only thing we can do with these sites is just to, to monitor them and to try to get the information that they have before nature does what it will with them. So we've started the HMS Florida program, Heritage Monitoring Scouts, and what this does is gets anyone from the public, anyone at all who wants to, to come volunteer can go out and, and check in on sites and, and monitor them. So even getting basic information as do we know where it is? Is it where we think we it is? Because a lot of sites were recorded first in the 1950s and no one's revisited them. And of course, we've had a, a lot of great technology updates to help us figure out, you know, where, where sites could be uh, GIS and, and, and getting good points like that. So these things in the 50s, the, the sites were just mapped in or hand-drawn and so that the data is out of date. So getting even just that information verified. But we also see can see changes to the sites over time. So places like Shell Bluff Landing, 
we've been talking about, you know, the erosion can be such a slow process and you can go out there and keep going and going and you don't really notice it until you have a photograph from 10 years ago and then you realize just how much has been lost. The other idea is to, to get a good baseline set of information about the sites. So if the state has the, the ability to go work at five different sites on state lands next year, you know, what sites should be a priority, what sites are being the most affected. And so that can help guide, you know, the, the resources that we do have to investigate sites. And, and can you tell me the, the kind of the process? So if, if I'm someone from the public and I wanted to get involved in the HMS uh, Florida program, uh, what's, what's, what do I have to do? And then what should I expect um, yeah. in terms of so, what I have to get done? The first step is to log on to fpan.us forward slash HMS Florida. And there you can find our scout application. So you can just put in some, some basic information about yourself so that we have the, we know who you are and that you're interested. And then we are hosting different trainings across the state. Really. We've had some here in Northeast Florida. There's one coming up in January in Jupiter and they have plans for some out towards Tampa. So to come to one of the trainings just to to learn what the forms are, what the process is, and get a little bit of, of training on, you know, how to assess threats or how to identify specific things you might see at sites. And then we will start giving you scout missions. And can you tell me about um, Tidally United? I, I know you did, you did this earlier this year, and I think there's plans to do them again uh, next year. Can you just explain what, what that is? So Tidally United is a cultural resource shoreline monitoring and public engagement summit. And what we did this past year in August was bring in folks from a, a, a wide variety of, you know, environmental backgrounds, historic preservation, archaeologists, historians. And we got used everyone in the same room to talk about these things and to talk about what we can do to protect cultural resources and, and to plan for some of these things. And it's where we launched HMS Florida. So we're hoping to make it an annual event. And next year it will be down in Hollywood and it's going to be co-sponsored by the Seminole tribe, which is very exciting to have them at, at the table too, to hear, um, you know, their thoughts about it. Cause so much of their reservation land is, uh, is, is very threatened from, from sea level rise. Yeah, I think they'd be a great partner for this, certainly, because, um, uh, you know, of course, I think we're, you know, being a state with 1,200 miles of coastline, uh, if, if you live here, if you visit here, you're kind of, all of us are, in a way, uh, going to be affected by by this, um, certainly in our state, um, which which brings me to kind of one, one last thing, which I wanted to get your thoughts on, just this quote that I, that I found, um, a maritime historian, I mentioned before, John R. Gillis, uh, wrote in his book, The Human Shore, Sea Coast and History, quote, the shore was the original home of Homo sapiens. Our relation to it has changed markedly over the last 200,000 years, but we have been inseparable from it from the beginning uh, and, and still are today. Coasts have played a vital role in making us human, and we in turn have made coasts what they are. We must learn to live with our shores, not just on them. Our survival and theirs depends on it. And so I was just interested in, in your thoughts on that, you know, being uh, someone who lives in Florida, uh, in St. Augustine, obviously by the coast, and then also as an archaeologist. Um, what, 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 do, you, do you agree with that kind of statement? Or? You know, folks ask me, well, where do you, how do you even find archaeological sites? And I'm like, well, where are the million-dollar houses today? <laughs> They're on high ground next to water. And that's where people have always lived. So 
So, and I think folks, it's not just coastal. It's not just literally next to the ocean. It's also the St. John's river has 6,000 plus years of just very dense human occupation here in Northlord. And I, I know a lot of the other rivers and, and bodies, inland bodies of water throughout the state have similar histories. So I, I think we have a lot to learn from the past of how people have lived on the coast and how they dealt with these issues because, you know, at certain points I mentioned sea level was coming up faster. It was coming up a football field in somebody's lifetime, at, you know, at some point a couple of thousand years ago. So how, how did they deal with that? What did they do? People's relationship with nature has been different in the past. And I think uh, we're currently a little more stubborn and we don't want to accept the changes that nature's forcing upon us. You know, people want their big houses on the beach and they don't want to move them and they don't want to deal with the fact that the beach is shrinking. But that's that's something we, we're going to have to face up to at some point. And I, I have a feeling it will be sooner than later. So I, I think looking at the strategies of people in the past can, can definitely benefit us in the future. And that's you know, why worry about these sites? Why try to protect these these archaeological sites in the face of all this? And it's because we have a lot to learn from from the people who have lived here. Yeah, it's 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 definitely uh, relevant. I, I think you're right. Well, th- thanks so much for being on. Uh, it was great talking to you, and um, I look forward to all this all the the great things that are going to come out of this program, um, and then also to Tidally United next year. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Archaeology in 30. For more information about HMS Florida, check out www.fpan.us and click on Projects. If you live around or are visiting the St. Augustine area, be sure to check out the GTM Environmental Education Center. This 21,000 square foot facility includes exhibits, aquariums, classrooms, labs, and an auditorium with lots of cool programs. We'll end this podcast with an episode of Unearthing Florida with Dr. Judy Bentz. And remember, Florida's archaeological resources belong to us all. So take only photos and leave only footprints. Take care. Visitors from all over the world flock to Florida's pristine beaches during the warm weather of June. But June also marks the beginning of hurricane season, a historically dangerous period, especially for sailors. I'm Dr. Judy Bentz, and this is Unearthing Florida. For centuries, violent winds and punishing waves produced by hurricanes and tropical storms have claimed some of the finest seagoing vessels of the day. As a result, there are numerous shipwrecks in the deep and shallow waters surrounding Florida. Archaeologists have excavated some of these underwater sites caused by hurricanes, such as the 1559 lunar wrecks in Pensacola Bay and the 1733 plate fleet shipwrecks scattered off the Florida Keys. Weaker tropical storms can be just as dangerous to ships even into modern times. The 1904 George's Valentine wreck near the city of Stewart and the 1937 SS Tarpon near Panama City were both lost in such storms. Today, these wrecks are among those featured as public museums in the sea in Florida's underwater archaeological preserve system. Dr. Judy Bentz is founder of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. Unearthing Florida is produced in partnership with WUWF Public Media. More information at unearthingflorida.org.